Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of having Ryan Bakey from Learn Like a CPA on. I saw him speak at the STR Wealth Conference in Nashville, and as soon as he spoke, I was like, yep, we are having this guy on. I need to go talk to him and get him on the show because, first of all, he answers so many questions that I myself and I know a lot of you have. I get so many DMs regarding, do I need an LLC? What kind of deductions can I take as a host? How should I structure this? Is it different depending on if I'm co-hosting, arbitrage, or ownership? All those questions, which again, I've even had myself, and he just broke everything down so concisely. Not just that, he was actually engaging, which can be difficult to find when it comes to the finance topic. So as soon as he spoke, I knew I wanted him on, went and talked to him after his presentation, and luckily we were able to connect since then and have him on today. So um, I will link his, he has his own podcast as well called Learn Like a CPA. That's also his username on Instagram. Go follow him, go subscribe to his podcast if you find taxes overwhelming. And I promise you, he does a really good job breaking this down. And he specializes in taxes for the real estate industry and short-term rental hosts. So Anyone who is in this industry, and if you feel overwhelmed, this is your guy. Without further ado, let's jump into this interview. I'm so happy I came up to you because I have been wanting to talk about this topic for a while, and I'll just give you a quick backstory on me, like my situation. So I've been co-hosting for three years, and then finally last year was the first time that my husband and I got into ownership, and mm-hmm. when that happened, it was totally like fly by the seat of our pants, Like, and that was why one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was how to purchase without a W-2, because my husband's a teacher, so that made it really easy that he had consistent income. But me as a co-host, I was just kind of like writing off all my supplies, like anytime I bought toilet paper, all my mileage to check on the properties. So I reported such little income, so I don't think we would have qualified without him. So that was why one of the topics I want to get into is purchasing with or without a W-2. But another big thing I want to talk about is Last year, when I officially had to start paying quarterly taxes, because I'm self-employed, and I, you're going to hate me for this as a CPA, I did not know that I'm supposed to pay quarterly taxes. I feel so stupid, but I had no idea. And when the time came, I was like, oh my God, I am going to be in such a shitty situation. But because of the property we bought last year, we had so many deductions on it that in the end, we still got money back. And that was, that was such an eye opener to me. Now this year, we need to buy another property by the end of the year, because I just want to keep reinvesting. And we did the whole Burr method. Well, we're like halfway through because we refinanced, but I haven't reinvested it and repeated yet. Um, But yeah, that's like another thing I really want to touch on with you, because I almost discovered by accident that, wow, like buying property can help you so much. And now like we saved so much on taxes and even got money back. So Right. I guess we can just dive in and start with maybe like covering the W two topic and yeah. what are your yeah, that's fine. yeah what are your thoughts on that? So many people who want to do real estate investing specifically do it because they want to leave their nine to five jobs. So what are your tips for not leaving your W two? Should you get your property before you do that, or how would you suggest structuring all of that? Yeah, so I think it's two parts. So there's the financial aspect of it, and then there's also the the lending aspect of how I'm actually going to acquire that next deal. Because when we talk about the financing part or just your lifestyle, 
when you go from, you know, nine to five job to whether you're doing co-hosting or arbitrage or you're owning rental real estate, mm-hmm. the income isn't, you know, guaranteed or it's not just like your nine to five where you get a, a paycheck every two weeks. So what I, what I recommend people to do on the financial side is get the boat close enough to the dock so you can actually jump off, meaning, you know, make sure you're going to have that proof that you're going to have income provided to you, whether it be through co-hosting or arbitrage or owning your own units before you actually just go full in and jump. If you don't have that income provided, it'd be, it'd be great for you to beef up your, what's called an emergency fund. Okay. So say for example, you know, let's say I had some co-hosting, some income streams, maybe, maybe it's half of my W2. Okay. But I'm not, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not uh, ready to go yet, but if I had an emergency fund of say a year's worth of expenses, that makes it a lot easier to shoulder that blow if the first couple of months don't pan out. But what I found that when people do what they generally love to do, they'll find a way to make money and they'll make more money than they did at their W2. It happens all the time, especially in the real estate field, because people get really creative. So with another thing too, when you go from W2 to self-employed, the biggest hurdle sometimes for most people is health insurance. Um, health, Health insurance can run... $500 $500 a month to $1,500, $2,000 a month if you have a family. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that you're going to have that covered too. That's definitely something you want to factor in before you make that jump. Or maybe maybe if you're married, one spouse still holds on to a W-2 and then the other spouse leaves. So at least you guys have health insurance covered that way. That's from a financial sort of, can I make it? Can I float? Can I, um, can my boat float, right? Can I leave? I see a lot of you know nurses, doctors, especially people in healthcare, for example, they'll still keep their license. And I know a ton of nurses who left from their W-2 to do real estate full-time, or let's let's call it 70, 80% full-time, okay. but then they can always pick up shifts uh, if they need if they need additional income. So that's having a job where you can kind of pick up, you know, additional work helps too. So you don't have to like fully commit to it. You can always have like one you foot don't want in the to. door and one yeah. out. Yeah, okay. You want to get, and so that kind of leads towards the financial side, I mean, at least for me, when I left my W-2 job, I was passively investing in, you know, syndications. I had my first, what's called a house hack. I had I had some sort of income streams on the side passively, but not enough. Okay. However, my, my side hustle, which was my CPA firm, it got to the point, like, I was making more money than my, actually at my W-2. Mm-hmm. And so if I was only putting, you know, I told myself, hey, if I'm only putting 10, 15 hours a week here on the side, then... Of course, I'll be able to make a living if I do that full time. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of analyzing the numbers and seeing, hey, this is how much I'm making putting in five, 10, this amount of effort. What if I did it full time? And if the numbers work, then then they're going to work and you're going to be able to make that jump or you don't want to call it a leap of faith because it's not. It's a calculated leap, if that makes sense. It's right. A calculated so you should move. have already had like proof of concept before. So in my case, I was I would already, recommend that. Yeah. Okay. Because I was already yeah. co-hosting for three years and saw the numbers sure. in our market before we jumped in all in on like ownership and and doing that route of short-term rentals. So that makes sense. So you want to, it shouldn't be a leap of faith. You should definitely know yeah, what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. Uh, but that leads into the next part of financing. How are you going to acquire the next deal? Because for me, working with lenders, at, even as a CPA, and actually going through it with myself as now that I'm self-employed full time, and I have been for uh, let's say eight months now, mm-hmm. it, lenders want to see that W two, the clean W two, yes, the payroll. They do. <laughs> it gets very hard to borrow money when you become self-employed because your options are limited unless you get those two years worth of tax returns. Yeah. And even when you do get those two years worth of tax returns, lenders want to know everything about you. If you're not, if you don't have a W-2, they want to know, they want to get your, you know, recent banks payments. They want to know your credit. They want to know like what you ate for breakfast. They want to know. Literally, you are not exaggerating. When we were financing our property, the stuff that they were asking for, it was like current bank statements up to that week. And I'm like, okay, so you're going to know how much I spent on makeup at Sephora and like the Starbucks I bought that morning. But yeah, again, so like, thank God we had my husband because I just don't know how. I don't know, like, what is your kind of advice for people who, like, really are self-employed or they're single or both them and their spouse are self-employed and they're both trying to leave their W-2? What are your suggestions on that? Just be prepared to give everything that the lender wants? That and, you know, be prepared to pay more for a loan, too. So we'll get into that in a second. But another thing, too, is you want to 
at least for me, I bought like at my last deal before I left. So if you have like a deal in the pipeline, mm. you know, definitely take that on while you're still a W-2 okay. and then make that jump to self-employed. I, when, when I'm coaching up people who are leaving their W-2s, that's what I always recommend is get that last deal under your belt before you jump because yeah. it's going to be a little bit before you can get your next deal unless you want to go the non-conventional uh, route of financing. So there's there's options though for the self-employed person who doesn't have the proof of income, okay. which is what the lenders wants to see, you can go the what's known as the DSCR route. So the, basically all the lender wants to see is that you have the cash uh, to buy the property, typically in nine, nine, six to nine months worth of reserves. Okay. And the DSCR loan, it is based on the target property's ability to service debt. And so typically it's going to be based on long-term rental rents, not short-term rental when you're mm. first starting off. Okay. And that's important too. So for example, you know, I want to buy a DSCR, but if you don't have short-term rental experience, a lot of the lenders now, and this this wasn't the case last year at this point, but now if you don't have short-term rental experience uh, owning property or co-hosting or arbitrage, they're going to make your DSCR qualify based on long-term rental rents, which means if I want to buy a property in Florida, you know, like a, let's say a half million, $600,000 property, mm-hmm. I'm only going to get a loan amount up to what it qualifies based on long-term rental rents. Well, oh. most single family homes in Florida are only going to rent out for maybe 300, uh, 3000 a month tops. Yeah. Which means, you know, my loan amount is going to be somewhere between 300 and 320, not the 500,000 that I want. And this, this happened to me. Okay. So DSCR is a route that the self-employed person can go. So the, the banks will only look at their, their, their bank statements, they might pull their uh, individual's credit and they're going to, but they're really going to be looking at that target property. That, that interest rate is going to be higher than your conventional loan. If you were to able to get say a secondary home loan or some other sort of financing, the DSCR. Okay. And the last one that I think that it's on the total, the very bottom of the total pool is what's called a bank statement loan. So the bank statement loan, all they want to see is, do you have like a rolling average of, the amount for the down payment plus six to nine months of reserves sometimes. Okay. So you know, if you wanted to buy, say, a half million dollar property, do you have a hundred thousand in your bank plus nine months of that debt, you know, mortgage payment, utilities? And the bank statement loan is going to be the highest interest rate typically. Mm-hmm. But those, there, so there are options for the self-employed person yeah. who wants to buy a property. It's just it makes it a lot harder and more expensive to do so. But there are options. And you, you know, you just weigh out the pros and cons, you know, you might pay an extra percent interest rate, but if that means you can get in the game a year, two years earlier than you were, if you were to wait for conventional financing, then so be it. If that's worth it to you. That's totally worth it. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense what you're saying. I really like that advice of getting in the property before you leave your W-2, because that kind of covers both things you were saying. For one, it's going to let you still keep that like one foot in the W-2 door and not like fully Mm -hmm. put all your eggs in this new basket and try out if it works for you. And then two, like you said, it's just going to make it easier to finance that purchase. So I think that's Mm -hmm. really solid advice. But as a self-employed person, are there workarounds to the 20% down payment? Because you just gave that example of a half a million million dollar property and having a hundred thousand in cash reserves. I know that there's other ways that you can get lower than a 20% down payment. Can you speak to that or would that be a better question for a lender? Yeah, the, so the last time I checked, I mean, they're still doing DSCRs at 15%. Okay. Um, you could always see if you can get an owner-occupied loan. Okay. Maybe maybe you live in the property for a year and then you flip it to a rental. Mm, okay. Yeah, something like, it, especially if you live in near by a vacation destination market. You can get, you might be able to qualify for an FHA, some sort of low money down loan, and then just turn it into a rental. Okay. But that's, that's your options, really, if you're self-employed. It gets, it's tough. It's tough out there. So if you're, you're thinking about leaving the W-2 to pursue real estate or something full-time, then just be, just be cautious when it comes to the lending requirements. As far as, so the next kind of topic is people ask about, you know, should you be, if you're self-employed, should you be deducting as much as possible Yeah. if it means you're lowering your income? And so the only, um, you have to take all your necessary expenses as a business owner. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten that question asked sometimes like, hey, can I just pick and choose which ones I take? 
even though that the expenses, some people want to leave them off because they, they think, oh, well, the IRS, they're not going to care if I pay them more money, right? If I have less expenses, but oh. you're actually required to take all the expenses that you have necessary, okay. whether it's in your real estate, your business, because if you don't, then you're being fraudulent with your, your lender, the IRS, and then a potential buyer of your business or real estate, right? So if you leave off expenses, I get this all the time. Like, can I leave off cleaning fees? Can I leave off this? You're actually, you're actually required wow. to report all the expenses that you have. I actually did not um, know. I've always heard yeah. of people taking like too many deductions. I did not even know there was a case where people want to deduct less. So you're some, very enlightening right now. Okay. For self-employed people, there's especially like lower earn, earning income people. There's a bunch of like tax credits, especially if you have kids and there's earned income credits. So people would want to leave off expenses because it means they fall in that sweet spot sometimes. I see. And so that's why you, you have to take, and if you think about it, you know, if I leave expenses off of a rental, let's say a cleaning fee, or I, I understate a cleaning fee, right? Let's say okay. I cut it in half and I take that profit and loss or my tax return and I show it to a potential buyer, I'm misrepresent. I'm misrepresenting what it actually costs to run that property. And mm-hmm. so that's misleading. It's fraudulent. And you're, you're required to take all the expenses that you have for, the business. Okay. The the one expense that should be good to go, whether you're self-employed or real rental real estate owner, is depreciation. So if you're if you're depreciating a vehicle or you're depreciating your real estate, the Fannie Freddie, they should be adding that depreciation back. Mm-hmm. That's like the only expense out there that you get to take that lowers your income, but it's also kosher with the banks because it's not going when it comes to because of the IRS, I tell them as little as possible, right? The yeah. IRS is the only place you actually want to be poor is when you go to report your tax return. <laughs> Everywhere else, you want to make as much money as possible, right? With yeah. banks, with other people, right? Just status. But only the IRS is where you want to be as cheap and like not make any money. But the banks should be adding back. If you look at the Fannie Freddie guidelines to calculating rental properties, they should be adding back that depreciation amount. Okay. And could I have you touch so, or yeah. expand on this a little bit? Because I know that this is a topic where everybody thinks that you want to buy property because it is an appreciating asset. Like it's, you know, hopefully the returns or how the house, how the housing value is going to grow is going to outpace inflation and everything. But then you're also able to depreciate the house. So can you just kind of cover this a little bit? It's a really weird concept. I, I call it the eighth wonder of the world because <laughs> it's like we know that our property tends to go up in value over time. Right. But what the what the you know what Congress, the IRS basically says is the contents inside of that building as well as the structure of the building is actually eroding and losing value over time. Think of like a canyon or a rock, it starts to crumble. It's the same thing with the house. You know, the couches, the furniture, everything, the millwork, the the cabinets, everything everything inside of your house technically loses value over time. Okay. Right. You know, the furniture is not worth as much five, 10 years later. And that's the way that they assign value to that property. And that's the, that's how you get depreciation. The, the value, the contents of your building is actually going down in value. Okay. But we know that real estate tends to appreciate value. So it's like this weird, um, it's very weird to explain. And well, either way, take advantage of the depreciation from it, from a tax perspective. Yeah, right. That's the way you recoup your cost of your down payment over time. Okay. So sometimes people are like, oh, can I write off my down payment? And you can write off certain closing costs. But as far as that nest egg, you know, that hundred grand that I put down, that's equity. So it, it really hasn't, your net worth hasn't really changed. Okay. You're just moving form. So that's, it goes from your, you know, your personal bank account to the real estate. And it doesn't uh, change your net worth at all. Unless you, of course, if you buy a good deal, your net worth can go up. Yeah. based on the difference between what you buy for and the appraisal, right? Yeah, so the depreciation amount is based on the purchase price. Okay. And over time, you, you get depreciation over time. And the thing to note is that depreciation is mandatory. So I see people will leave, some people will say that they leave depreciation off so that they don't have to pay it back or they don't lower their income. It's actually mandatory and required that you take depreciation. Oh, Okay. So mm-hmm. I want to kind of go back to when we were talking about deductions, um, especially in the case of someone who's self-employed, because there are cases, you know, where CPAs will say, hey, you went to dinner with your spouse while you were at dinner. Did you talk about the business? Yes. OK, that's a business dinner. And I know that there's like those 
questionable, like gray areas, what would be like your suggestion in those cases? Like, should you take advantage of all those deductions? Or since we were saying it might be easier as a self-employed person to get a loan if you are reporting a higher amount, where do you like find that balance? I don't know. However you can like advise here. So the, basically you're allowed to take any expense that's ordinary and necessary to your, whatever it is you're doing. Okay. So for example, you know, let's say I'm a dentist and I, I own a dental practice. Is it ordinary for me to need a vehicle to drive back and forth from my house to my practice? Of course. Yes. Is it necessary for, for me to need a $150,000 Aston Martin? <laughs> Maybe not. Right. Is it like, do, do I need that to go back and forth? Maybe not. So okay. The, the expense has to be ordinary in your trader business and also necessary. Okay. So that's where that gray area sits is, you know, is it, you can go to dinner and, and it's a necessary expense if you're talking business, but is it necessary that you get, you know, three martinis <laughs> or you, you're getting bottle service at a club or something like that? Yeah. So that's where the area lies. And you just, it's really just, you have to be honest with yourself. You know, is this something that you would, if you gave your car to a friend or an employee and you're like, oh, just go ahead and you know buy whatever you want. What what would you allow them to buy? I kind of think. Oh, that. that's a really good way to think about it. Because then it just yeah. kind of yeah, if you would okay it for for an employee or a friend or whoever, then that would sit right with you. And then probably if yeah. you ever got audited, it would sit well with the IRS as well. Because when I was at when I was working at Big Four Accounting, we we would get credit cards that we could use to spend on you know meals. Yeah, and that's what we always saw. Like, all right, can we get the fifty dollars steak? Can we get you know the this? Yeah, and that's the same way I kind of think about deductions, right? It can't be it can't be excessive, and you know you may not want depending on where you're at in your um, stage of life. If you're acquiring a lot of property, you don't want to like rack up a bunch of deductions, right. especially ones that you can't add back to your income. Right. So maybe, so maybe like when you're first starting off, you, you keep it easy on the expenses. Okay. Right. And then as you're acquiring more and more property, as you start to make more and more money, it's like, Hey, I need all the expenses I can get. Cause now my tax bracket's high. Mm-hmm. And we see that all the time where people, you know, people tend to make more money over time, whether it's in their W2s or they're buying more real estate. So when you're first starting off and you need all that income, try not to take as many expenses, but once you start making more money and you have a higher tax bracket, of course, you're going to want all the expenses you can get. Okay. Okay. I love that advice. That's going to definitely stick with me. So if it, if there's that gray area, just think to yourself too, like if you'd be okay with a friend spending that. I love that. Yeah, um, sure. I want to ask you too, and I feel kind of bad because I'm just throwing this one on you. I didn't put this on our list of questions, but what's your advice on cars? Because there's a lot of like driving to check on the properties. And do you have a thought on whether it's better to lease a car or purchase? And if leasing helps you get better deductions or anything like that? So generally speaking, it's actually best to finance it. Okay. Um, If you lease a vehicle, you're only able to write off the lease payment. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you finance the vehicle, you're able to write off the purchase price or the, um, you know, the, the total value of the property. Okay. So let's take, for example, a $30,000 van or something. If I lease that, you know, let's say my payments 500 a month, I'm only writing off 500 a month. So that'd be six grand in one year Okay. versus if I finance that van, I can potentially write off the entire amount of the van in the first year if I meet certain requirements. Okay. So t- time value of money, when, and why I say that when it comes to a tax perspective is time value of money basically says you would rather finance that van and pay it off over five years than A, pay cash for it because now you're 30 grand out the door. Yeah. And you get the same tax benefits whether or not you finance it or you pay cash. Oh, really? And okay. Yes. Yeah, so whether or not you bought it, you know, you shelled out 30 grand or you finance it, you're still able to depreciate it. Okay. And so that's why time, when I say time value of money, I basically mean that your dollar is worth more to you today working for you than it is four or five years in the future. Mm-hmm. And so mostly speaking, it's, it's best to finance it. But I would say, I would caveat that because I see this all the time where you know, a realtor will go out, maybe make seventy, eighty thousand their first year and then go and buy a fifty, sixty thousand dollar car. Okay. It's like, sure, you know, you just lowered your income only down to 20 now, but... <laughs> Now you have a now you have a car that you just spent. You just you know you just wiped out your income. Right. Um, so you, you want to be you want the deductions, but you also want to be smart. So I wouldn't buy something unless you absolutely needed it. Okay. Say you know a vehicle, and when it comes to the vehicles, 
So there's really two ways to sort of write off the cost of the vehicle. You can either get a what's called the standard method, which is the easiest way to do it is you basically just track the amount of miles that you drive for business purposes and multiply it by a flat rate. They actually just changed it this year uh, up to 62 and a half cents, I believe. So, if, you know, if I drove 10,000 miles in one year and you also want to be uh, really, you also want to don't over-exaggerate this. So there was one guy that, or a CPA firm I was talking to, they had a guy that drove like 32,000 miles and he was, he was a realtor. Okay. And they asked him, he goes, hey, you know, the circumference of the world is 28,000 miles. He's like, so you, you're, you want to tell me that you drove the circumference of the world in one year? <laughs> he's like, oh, he's like, oh, I, I actually calculated they were both, they were all my miles, personal and business. And he's like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. But, but that's what I'm saying. So you want to be realistic with that also. Yeah. So, so let me backtrack. So you either, you take the miles or you take the, uh, you can potentially depreciate the car if you use it for the majority of business purpose. Okay. 50% or greater. You're able to, back to that example of financing it, you know, if I'm, if it's a $30,000 car and I have to put six grand down, I'm six grand down, but I get the $30,000 tax deduction that year. Yeah. Same tax deduction, whether you put the, you whether you finance it or you pay cash. So okay. Time value money says it's better to finance. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then this is one I know that I sent you beforehand, but what are your thoughts on hiring kids in the business? I know majority of my audience is moms or women who are hoping to become moms soon. Like, What's your strategy here? I mean, my kids are only three months and 18 months, so I know it would be okay. unrealistic right now. But like in the future, I want them to spend some time cleaning Airbnbs, building up that work ethic. Even if somebody just wants to have their kids help them with like marketing or something that's not as tangible as like cleaning the property. What's your advice here on how to open an account for them, how to pay them, how to structure that so that you're making the most of the tax benefits there? Yeah. So first off, it it's a great way to teach kids work ethic. Yeah. Uh, and also, it's 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 a great way to get them started working and teaching them you know solid work ethic. Uh, the tax benefits are amazing because essentially, if you hire your kid in your business, you're able to get a, a tax deduction for the business. The kid, because they make such little money, assuming that you're the only one that's employing them, mm-hmm. they're not going to have to pay taxes on that money generally. And then the best part is because now the child has earned income, they're actually able to contribute to a retirement account, such as a Roth oh. IRA. So okay, there's like yeah. triple, there's triple tax savings there because let's just, let's just run numbers, right? So I'm in a 35% tax bracket. Let's say I pay my child $3,000 to work in a business. Okay. Well, if I take 3000 times 35%, I think it comes out to be 1500 bucks. Okay. Maybe somebody check. <laughs> so I get a 15, I get it. I basically save $1,500 in taxes in my business because I'm able to send 3000 from, from my business to my child. Okay. So I get, I get a $3,000 write off. And then because they only make 3000 and they're below what's called the standard deduction amount, they don't have to pay income tax on that amount federally. Okay. Right. So there's second tax savings there. So I basically transferred 3000 from my, me to my child tax free. I got a right. I got a deduction for it in my business. My child gets to receive it tax free, and then they get to take that three thousand and put it into you know a retirement account. Ninety nine percent of the time, you want that in a Roth IRA because they're when they make contributions to that Roth IRA, it never gets taxed again. Oh, okay. When you when you go to withdraw Roth IRA funds, they don't get taxed again, and so basically that's three thousand dollars Roth IRA tax free the entire way from the business to the child, child to the Roth account. And the craziest part about this, and I actually have a podcast that breaks this down entirely, but the the idea is with with a Roth IRA, you're actually able to pull out up to $10,000 of earnings Mm -hmm. completely tax-free if you meet certain requirements. And so, for example, let's say you start your kid at 15 or 16 in the business and you're paying them that three or $4,000 per year, and then they turn 22, 23, they graduate college. Maybe they might have twenty grand saved in this account. Okay, but it grows to thirty. Well, at twenty two, twenty three, they're able to take that entire thirty grand out of the account if they buy a first time home. So then you get your child to get basically thirty grand out of thin air, free. That was from your business in the form of deductions. Now they have thirty grand, and they could buy a first time home. Okay, that they maybe maybe they house hack it. 
right? So then maybe they buy a duplex or a triplex. Yeah. So your your child got their first rental property for free in this example. Amazing. They're yeah. getting deductions from the business. They don't have to pay taxes on it. And they can funnel that into a Roth IRA and you, they can use the Roth IRA for just a head start on retirement. I mean, if you if you map out how much, if you were to put two $3,000 in that account from when the child, say, 14, 15, until they're 65, I'm, we're talking like $5 million okay. easily. Yeah. And, but let's kind of talk about, so it has to be, again, ordinary and necessary. So the easiest way I explain this is, because you can't just hire your kid for 50 bucks an hour and have them file papers or clean houses, right? It has to be somewhat reasonable. Okay. You know, I can't hire, if I had a 14-year-old son to mow my lawn, I can't pay him 60, 70 bucks to go mow it, right? It has to be <laughs> 25 or 30. Right. But the way, I, the way I talk about this is, what would you pay your neighbor's kid to work in your business? Mm-hmm. Same thing. Yeah. What would you pay the girl down the street to work in your business? I That's like these analogies. Okay. Yeah. yeah. These you are a good way to go tackle these gray areas. Yeah. I'm sorry. I cut you, you can't off. can't go hog wild with it. Yeah. But that's, that's the terminology. But assuming you kind of check all the boxes and it's a great way to, again, build work ethic, build build some generational wealth and get your child head started. Uh, because with that Roth IRA account, again, they could, you know, head start on retirement. They can use it for college funds if they wanted yeah. to. They can use it for their first, their primary residence. That might be a house hack. There's so many things they can do with that Roth IRA money. And And that's the strategy. Right. So are there limits to this that they cannot touch this money until they're 18 years old? So with a, with a Roth IRA, so they can, they could, that 3,000, you know, they're not required to put that in sort of any sort of retirement account. So once they get that money. You could like pay your kid, like put it in their piggy bank and you could still deduct it for your tax savings. Right. Oh, okay. There's no requirement for them to do anything with the money. Gotcha. Okay. This is just just putting that money to work. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. If you just pay the kid, you know, they're going to spend it most likely. Yeah, for sure. And then what are your thoughts too on like when it's realistically like when you could realistically hire them on again, like my kids are too young right now, but would you just follow that same analogy? Like if you wouldn't hire your neighbor's three-year-old, like you probably shouldn't hire your own three-year-old. Would you just use that same mentality here? With with Airbnb, there's some, you know, I've heard of some people getting away with say doing modeling for their kids. So maybe they got like a three or four-year-old kid oh, and yeah. helping them stage the Airbnb and they're taking pictures yeah. So then it's a question of, you know, do you want your kid in the photos of your Airbnb? So it kind of gets <laughs> touchy, but yeah. And then of course you, you know, you would pay them a reasonable hourly wage for taking the photos. And so even if it amounts to say 500, a thousand, 1500 bucks at the end of the year, that's still money, especially if it goes in that retirement account that they for could sure. use in the future. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So just, I, have a, I have a podcast that just outlines all this. I did listen to a few episodes of your podcast and it's okay. really good. I feel like you Thank just you. get so quick to the point with information. Um, no, you're really good. So yeah, to shout out your podcast, it's learn like a CPA. I will link it in the show notes too. So people can go find cool. you, but I listened to a few episodes and I definitely recommend people check it out. gears and talk about how to structure your business, LLC versus S-Corp. Like what do you recommend for real estate investors, Airbnb hosts, um, and not just like which structure is better, but also does the structure kind of change depending on the model you're doing, whether you're owning the real estate, you're doing co-hosting or you're doing arbitrage? Yeah, hundred percent it does. If you're doing owner, if you're doing co-hosting or arbitrage, that's an or what's called an ordinary business activity. So you're not an owner, but instead you're a you're just you're operating a business essentially, which okay. means you're self-employed if you're co-hosting or you're doing arbitrage. And so if you're if you're co-hosting arbitrage, you're self-employed and you're gonna be paying those self-employment taxes. Well, if you if you estimate that you're gonna make let's let's call it 70 grand a year net income after all that's said and done. You might want to be structured as an S corporation in order to save on self-employment tax. I don't want to go all far into the weeds of that, but if you can if you can project out that you're going to net 70 grand or so through co-hosting or arbitrage, you're going to want to be set up as an S corp for tax purposes because it'll save you money. If you're doing ownership, if you own the if you own the asset, we don't want to do any S corp. 
we either want to hold that in our personal name with a kick-ass umbrella insurance policy, or we, we just want to have a single-member LLC. Between so, those two, do you have a preference? Ownership or co-hosting arbitrage? Or no, between um, if you're owning your own real estate, do you have a preference between oh, having okay. the umbrella policy or going for an LLC? So, so I have two takes on this. And the first one, because I'm a, I'm a CPA, but not an attorney, I feel like I'm like, I know enough to be a little dangerous. <laughs> There's two takes. So the first one I have is what is the real estate that you own equity wise in comparison to your total net worth? So if you tell me like, Brian, I have a million dollar net worth and 800,000 of that's in my, you know, my cash, retirement, stocks, savings, you name it. And I got 200,000 in real estate. Well, I'm like, Hey, well, you know, your real estate in, in, in comparison to your entire net worth is not substantial. So you, you might be fine with just a personal umbrella policy, uh, okay. insurance policy. But if you flip that on its head and you say, Hey, I got a million dollar net worth, 800,000 is tied up in real estate. 200,000 is in my personal name. You're probably going to want some additional protection beyond the umbrella policy. And the, the other take that I see a lot of people do oftentimes is they will assign kind of like a dollar value in their head and they'll say, Hey, as soon as, each property gets up to this amount of equity. I want to put some more structure around it. So some guys do hundred K, especially out in the Midwest property values are lower. You know, some people do like, Hey, as soon as the property hits hundred K in equity, equity, right? Not fair market value, but the amount of equity that you um, have in the property. Yeah. As soon as that hits hundred K, 200 K, there's people that will decide to move it into an LLC. So those are the two. And it's, it's important to know whether or not you have it in the LLC or not the ownership side, it doesn't matter for tax purposes. It's going to be, your tax are treated the same, but it's that liability portion that a lot of people, they, they hold back because they take all this information in Yep. and they, they don't get started because they're dealing with, do, do I do this, do that? Yeah. Unfortunately, like some people like shoot themselves in the foot because they set it up wrong the first time because they don't, they don't want to pay an attorney fee. They don't want to pay an hourly CPA fee. They don't want to talk to anybody before they go to set it up. I'm here to tell you that if you own rental real estate that goes up in value, if you own it, it should be in your personal name with a good umbrella policy, or it should be in single member LLCs. Okay. No S corps, no C corps. I'm really, I'm so glad you said that because I have noticed this too, that a lot of people really do hold themselves back, hold themselves back for years from starting real estate truly because they're just so intimidated by the process and thinking there's so many hoops they have to jump through. And I do agree with you. Like, I think any amount of money you spend sitting down with a CPA and tax planning is worth it. But to me, it's like, just get started. You can create the LLC later if you want to. So yeah, I see so many people on like TikTok and stuff saying like, you cannot start this until step one is go make your LLC. And it's really frustrates me that people will hold themselves back just for that reason. You can start it later. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Yep, 100%. Okay, so we did talk about this a little bit. But so that's that's for ownership is either the own it personally or do uh, own it personally with the umbrella policy or do the LLC. And then like you said, for co-hosting or arbitrage, that's where like an S corp would make sense. You're running a business in that case. And like you said, you wouldn't start that until you're at that $60,000, $70,000 in yeah. salary. Okay. Okay. And, and, and you don't have any other, you don't have a W2 income either. Oh, okay. Okay. That's good to know. So it's, so based, long story short, the reason why you do an S corp is to save on what are called FICA taxes, which is social security and Medicare. If you're already a, if you're a W2 employee and you're doing co-hosting or arbitrage on the side, you're already paying into that, that right. system. Okay. So, so you may not want to set up the escort because you might already be maxed out as how, how much you have to pay into that system because of your W-2. Yeah. So it, it doesn't make sense for you to set it up that way because you're not going to save any money to begin with. Okay. That makes sense. Um, while you said that, I just thought of another question. If we could go back really quick to the, um, sure. the LLC question. So you said that like someone in the Midwest, they might put a number value on when they should start their LLC. So when it's worth 100000 or 200000 But you gave that example too, where out of someone whose net worth is a million dollars, there's a guy who only 20% of that might be in real estate versus the guy who has 80% of that net worth in real estate. What's your opinion on that? Do you think it makes more sense to go by that dollar value in equity or to wait until it's at a certain percentage of your net worth before you jump into the LLC? 
I think it's uh, I think it makes sense net worth wise more. That's yeah. a rolling metric where you're and the thing with real estate and just financial freedom is everything's inclusive of each other, right? Your day job, your real estate, your passive income side, your stocks. And so you have to hit, get the full picture of everything in order to make decisions. Because sometimes the decisions that we make in our business aren't just revolved around our business. They're also revolved around our, our personal life, our family. I, I, I steer towards that net worth amount. Okay. And you would say like what percentage is, is a healthy one? Like at what point when your real estate portfolio is this much of your net worth, when would that like threshold be that you'd cross into the LLC game? Right. 30 or I'd say 30. 30. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. I've been holding off because I'm in California and setting up an LLC here is a, that's a good point. (laughs) Is a bitch. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's really good to know. Um, and then the, the final point I wanted to touch on with you was just kind of how do you recommend, um, paying out your team that helps you run your, your short-term rental business. So your cleaners, should these be on a salary? Is a 1099 okay? And then on the flip side too, if you are doing co-hosting, for example, how should your, how should the owners who you're managing for pay you out? Should that also be a 1099 Mm -hmm. situation or just kind of anything you can advise with this paying out the people who help you and then also how you get paid out? Yeah, so when you go to pay somebody, you always want to request what's called a W-9 before you pay them. So a W-9 is basically an informational statement that uh, you fill out a W-4 when you're an employee, but when you're a contractor, you fill out a W-9. Basically, just it's your legal information, name, address, social security number. And that so that way there, at the end of the year, your employer can issue you your W-2. And if you're a business owner, you can issue 1099s. You okay. want to get the W nine. Let's, for example, a contractor. You know, you know, you might you might pay a contractor ten thousand or a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. You're going to want to get that W nine before you send them money, and this is the reason why. Because if you do not do that, and you pay, let's say you pay them a large sum of money, and then you find out, oh crap, I you know I have a ten ninety nine them. I have to figure out how to do that. I have to go get a W nine, and especially if it's towards the end of the year. They are not going to respond to you. They will be silent and ghost you because they know that if they get that form, they're going to get a they're going to get a ten ninety nine, and they have to include that in their income. So you want to do it before you issue them any payment? Yeah, and I mean, I've even heard people say that they've requested that up front because they've heard me say that, and then their cleaner or their contractor doesn't want to work with them. Wow. And I've heard people say, well, hey, my, you know, my cleaner wants to be paid under the table. My contractor wants to be paid under the table. Yeah. And my response to that is, well, if they're, if they're, if they want to be shicey with the IRS or the banks, what, what makes them think that they're not going to, what makes you think that they're not going to try to pull one over on you too? Yeah. Right. They're being, they're being misleading or fraudulent to somebody else, not reporting their income. Yeah. Well, are, are they going to forget to do something in your turn and you're clean? Are they going to, is the contractor going to put the hinges on the door wrong? Is he going to cut corners, use different like cheap parts? Yeah. So that's a really you, good point. Yeah. Yeah. You always want to get the W9 from them before you send them a check. Yeah. Now, and I guess if that scares as, them off, that's a red flag already. It is a red flag. And you have to question if you want to work with them or not. As far as paying them goes, if you send them check, if you, if you pay with check or cash, you have to 1099 them. With this year, if you send them money uh, through a, a processing app, so if you pay with a credit card, PayPal, Venmo, uh, Chase Bank, whatever, if you're sending them money electronically, you do not have to 1099 them. And the reason the reason why is because now these these apps have lowered their reporting requirement to $600 flat. And if you, let's say, for example, PayPal, right? So PayPal will send them, PayPal will send you a statement if you receive enough money from them. And if you as a business owner send that same person a 1099, well, now they have two 1099s. They have one from PayPal and they have one from you. So now starting this year, if you send them money via PayPal or Venmo, you you do not have to 1099 them because otherwise they're going to get double information reported to them. Okay. So they'll kind of take care of it automatically. But if you're paying by check or cash, you have to kind of do that work up front and get that W-9. Yeah, right. Okay. And then I guess the same would go for, I do co-hosting a lot. And so in that case, the owners, they issue me a 1099. 
So same thing, right? It's just, okay, okay. I know like Airbnb also takes care of a lot of it too because I split the payout on Airbnb that I automatically get my commission. Um, So they issue all the tax forms and stuff too. Just like you said, if you pass $600, they'll take care of it. Well, that was really good info. I just want to finish on this with you. Um, every episode I do an Airbnb quick tip. So this is just a quick action item that somebody can leave that very day and and go put this into action. What, from a CPA perspective, can you leave people with after just listening to everything? What is like one quick tip in a couple minutes or less that they could walk away with and go implement today? Uh, do your bookkeeping monthly. Do not wait mm-hmm. till the end of the year. Okay. Uh, so if you if you think about this, for example, a lot of people, when they go to buy properties, especially STRs, they're punching in numbers on these spreadsheets to figure out what their cash on cash is. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as they acquire the property and get it up running, they're very shit at bookkeeping. Like they don't <laughs> even keep track of what they're spending. You know, yeah. it's like, why go through all the effort of determining what your cash on cash or your ROI is going to be? And then you're not even keeping track of your financials uh, clean and accurate. Gosh, that's so, such a good point. Yeah. Keep track of your bookkeeping. And the reason why you want to do it monthly is because you're going to be on top of things. You're going to be keeping track. If you, let's say, for example, it takes you an hour a month to do it and you don't do it for six months. Well, not only are you going to have six hours worth of bookkeeping to do, but now you're trying to go back in time. It's going to be a lot more time for you to do that. And odds are you're going to miss expenses. You're going to miss revenue. You're going to miss some of the deductions or expenses that you had also, too. Definitely keep track of your bookkeeping. Try to do it on a monthly basis. And for those with multiple properties, I would say you know, if you're if you're a W two and you have you also have two or three properties, it's probably time to hire a bookkeeper. Uh, just because it's it's such a it's such a like a cost sink for you because that is you know an hour two hours a month that you could have been spending looking at the next property yeah. or analyzing the next deal. Or going all in at your W-2 so that way you can make more money to buy deals mm-hmm. rather than doing bookkeeping. So if you're that person that doesn't have time to do the bookkeeping, try to outsource that as quick as possible. Find a bookkeeper to help uh, run that. So typically, you know, if you're W-2 and you have two or three properties, that's about time to outsource your bookkeeping. Okay. Or if, you, if you're full-time real estate, you have you know more than five properties, five or more outsource that to somebody else because your ROI on actually using that time and going to find more deals or provide more value is going to be way more than you taking that time to do the bookkeeping. A hundred percent. And then do you have any um, suggestions on like the best uh, bookkeeping? Like, do you like QuickBooks? Do you just do Excel? So So QuickBooks is fine. And QuickBooks is historically works the best. There's there's one called Stessa that's free for landlords that and it actually calculates um, cash on cash ROI. And what it's was it called? Stessa. It's called Stessa. It's just S T E S S A. Okay. They should they should give me commission, but they don't because <laughs> um, I recommend it a lot. And you're gonna want to you know you're gonna want to keep track of your income and expenses monthly because it's gonna as as a business owner it's gonna allow you to make better decisions about your business or real estate. You know if you're not keeping track of that. How are you, how do you know whether or not you're profitable? I mean, you can ballpark guess, hey, I got this much money coming in. Yeah. But you never know how much you're spending on things unless you're actually keeping track of it. There's so much too that I think you could discover just by doing that. For example, if, um, I don't know, let's just say that you had three guests complain about cleanliness that month and you had to issue some refunds for it. If you're looking at that closely and you see why did I have to issue three refunds on cleaning fees, that's like mm-hmm. such a good note that, hey... I might need to look at a new cleaner or retrain them. So there's probably a lot you can learn too, just by looking at your expenses and seeing like where you're paying out more money and things like that. So I think that's great advice. So get on top of your bookkeeping and make sure you're doing it once a month. Yep. It's the same thing with people who don't have like a personal financial budget. Mm. They tend to overspend so much. They don't know exactly how much they're spending. And because I was teaching personal finance a little bit, you'd be surprised at how many people they go to pull their last three months of bank statements and they... You know, they think they only spend $200, $250 a month eating out. And it turns out they're 
sometimes. That stuff adds up quick. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. That was really good. If you end up getting an affiliate for Stessa, an affiliate link, Uh, let me know and I will drop it in the show notes here um, because definitely want to support. But yeah, thank you again. I'm so glad I came up. Well, I'm so glad you spoke at the Estera Wealth Conference. And literally, I had been thinking like in the last month that I wanted a CPA specifically in the short-term rental market to come on because I get so many questions about this. So I'm so glad I found you. Um, I got to talk to your fiance too, and she's so sweet. So congrats on your engagement and upcoming wedding. (laughs) But yeah, thank you again. And everyone go make sure you check out his podcast. I will link it below. Thanks so much, guys. (laughs) It's been a blast. It was nice to do this. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, this is the first time ever that this one is actually not from Facebook, but from Twitter. And just me saying that, I feel like a lot of you already know what I'm referencing because this tweet thread went so viral over the weekend. I had so many of you send me this one, actually, so I knew I had to do it. Backstory of this is that, and I'm actually going to use the person's real name because at this point they went viral enough. You've probably seen this, so I'm going to use this person's real name. This is from Dr. Alex Moore, and I'll even link the tweet thread below if you guys want to go read it for yourself. So Alex, she was a guest at an Airbnb, and it looks like what happened is she left a four-star review after checking out. And this is what she posts. In the interest of my own personal safety as well as public safety at Airbnb and at Airbnb Help, can you explain to me and everyone else why the host who sent me this message is still active on your platform? This person is clearly a threat and should not be allowed to host guests. Here's a screenshot that she attaches. from. She blocks out the number, but her host texted her this. And texted her this, okay? This wasn't through the Airbnb app. Texted this separately. Said, I have your picture, your name, and your number. You have 48 hours to remove your review or I am hiring a private investigator to obtain your address and then the fun begins. You are blocked from messaging me at this number. What the actual F, you guys, okay? So then Alex continues and she says... I left a four out of five star review with a positive message and the host has contacted me at my personal number with increasingly threatening text because my review brought their average rating down from a five to a 4.95. She actually attaches a screenshot of this review and it says, really enjoyed my time here and would certainly stay again if I found myself in Vancouver for a few short days. That's the review. Okay. And she gave four stars. Okay, hosts, this is why, I mean, clearly whoever that host is does not listen to my podcast or or follow me because there's no way, there's no way in hell I would ever approve of this behavior. Of course, good ratings are important, but oh my gosh, to send your guest a threatening message after because they gave you four stars instead of five and the review was good. This is why I always say, too, don't worry about the stars people give you. What's so much more important is the actual text of the review. Some people just aren't going to give you five stars unless it's literally the Ritz-Carlton. That's just, it comes from different cultures, different ways you've been brought up, different standards you have, and there's nothing wrong with that. If somebody left a four-star review on a restaurant on Yelp, would the restaurant owner send a text to whoever that reviewer was. If somebody leaves a four-star review on a product on Amazon, is the manufacturer of that product going and texting threatening messages like this to that reviewer? I don't know why it's only Airbnb hosts that overreact this way, but y'all need to chill, okay? Let's continue with this tweet thread here. So Alex says, I have already contacted local authorities, but beyond protecting myself, at Airbnb has an obligation to the public to act. Their listing is still active as of this posting and should be taken down immediately. Alex, I agree. That is so unacceptable. I don't care how many five-star reviews this host has. If one four-star review makes them this unhinged to this point, they cannot be on the platform. They can't. This is... 
That is really, really dangerous behavior. Next tweet says, quick update. The listing is still posted, but I just spoke with Vancouver PD and they will be sending someone over to tell the host to leave me alone or else. They may also revoke his license to participate in house share programs. Fingers crossed. Then she attaches some screenshot from Airbnb support saying, hi, Alex, I'm sorry for this experience. I'm sending you to the correct team right now to make sure you receive prompt assistance. If this is an emergency or you feel your personal safety is threatened in any way, please contact the local police or emergency services immediately. Alex said thank you, which good thing she did already contact local law enforcement. Then she says, just got off the phone with the Airbnb safety team. They will be contacting the host next. So far, no specific outcome has been guaranteed. We'll see what happens. Okay, did anyone catch me just say outcome? Oh my gosh, I start reading about Canada and then I start saying outcome like outcome. What is wrong with me? Okay, continuing. Next tweet, calling it a night. We'll be back at it tomorrow. Thank you to everyone for responding and amplifying this. Stay safe. Next tweet, I know I said I was done for the night, but update, I think the listing has been taken down. I can still see it through my account since I booked with them previously, but if others could check and confirm, that would be wonderful. Next tweet, it is confirmed that his listing has been taken down. I will continue to follow up with at Airbnb help regarding next steps. Thank you all again for amplifying this and sharing your stories to help keep others safe, muting this and restricting comments for my sanity. Stay safe. Final update. Here we go. Final update. Hi, this is from Airbnb support. She took a screenshot of their message to her. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for bringing this to our attention and for your patience as we investigated. We have concluded our investigation and can confirm for you that we have removed the host's account and listing from Airbnb in accordance with our policies on bullying and harassment. More information on these policies can be found here. Then they provide a link to their combating hate, harassment, and discrimination policy. And then finally, thank you for sharing that you are in touch with the Vancouver PD. Please know that we are able to support their investigation in accordance with our policies. If you want to share the name and contact info for the investigating officer, we would be happy to have our law enforcement team get in touch. Or if you prefer, you can share our law enforcement response portal. Okay, blah, blah, blah. That's it, you guys. So that's it. And then she closed off the thread. I obviously... Okay, the host is deranged. What a psychopath. You guys, I just, again, it's like, does this happen in other industries? If any of you work in another industry and you also see people get this heated over four-star reviews, can you DM me and let me know? Because I swear, I feel like Airbnb hosts are just particularly sensitive to this. You guys need to chill out. And I feel like I'm just preaching to the choir right now because anyone who likes my hosting philosophy already is normal and stable on these kind of issues. But if you feel yourself getting overheated on a four-star review, like just please get some perspective that it's fine. And if you do really need some extra perspective, go back and listen to the episode titled Talk Nerdy to Me. I interviewed a data scientist, actually my sister, and she goes into specifics on how guests are looking at ratings and if it actually does impact their perception of your listing or not. She breaks down all the numbers and I promise you if you listen to that, you will see that your reviews are not as important as you think they are. This is just unhinged behavior. I am really glad that Alex posted this and amplified this and good on Airbnb for stepping in and deactivating that host's account. Again, I don't care how many five-star reviews they had previously. Normally, I am all for giving second chances. I am not pro-cancel culture or any of that, but if one four-star review makes you this, this insane, you cannot be in the customer service business. Okay. I'm not saying we should hunt down that host and like ruin their life, but you can't be in the hospitality industry if your gut reaction to a good review. Again, the review was actually nice. You guys, it was actually a good review. She said she'd come back. If this is your reaction to a good review, um, you, you can't be in hospitality. So good on Airbnb, good on this guest for posting that. That's a wrap on this one. The host is the Airbnb hole. Alex and Airbnb, good job. You handled this correctly. And so did Vancouver PD. So lots of shout outs to give, but the host is for sure in the wrong. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you back here next week. 
Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.